0: but it's something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect
1: upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. And it's also available as a podcast at cityfm.org. And I'm your host, Andy Longhurst, uh, here for the next hour. What are the local solutions to addressing affordable housing, homelessness, and mental health? And what are the gender dimensions to these issues? We'll be exploring these issues in a Vancouver context with four speakers uh, who bring considerable experience, knowledge, and insight into providing safe, adequate, affordable, and gender-inclusive housing. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. Welcome to the program. This is The City. Um, I'm Andy Longhurst, and we've got some great, uh, great urban content lined up for you today. And uh, we're going to be hearing uh, from the Engaging Women uh, Transforming Cities uh, conference. This was held back in May of 2013, May of this year. And uh, this was a conference uh, that brought together municipal politicians, uh, urban designers, planners, uh, activists, women and girls, um, all coming together, interested in ways to transform cities. Into places where women are more involved in, in these very electoral processes that govern, that we govern our cities by, um, but also um, ensuring that municipal governments and cities are, are really more attentive um, and realize that there are um, unique um, but also diverse um, needs and priorities uh, for women and girls uh, in, uh, in Canada's urban centres. And uh, the the speakers that we're going to be hearing uh, from today, uh, we're going to be hearing from Janice Abbott. And she is the CEO of Atira Women's Resource Society and Atira Property Management. And this is a nonprofit um, and uh, they provide um, housing and uh, a number of uh, social services, supportive housing um, throughout uh, sites in uh, Surrey and uh, notably in the downtown east side. Additionally, uh, Janet uh, Creda, and she is the Senior Housing Planner for Metro Vancouver. um, And um, Margot Young, and she is Associate Professor of Law at UBC and the uh, Co-Principal Investigator of the Housing Justice Project. Additionally, uh, Jean Swanson, who is uh, a leading anti-poverty and anti-gentrification activist here in Vancouver. Uh, She's also the author of um, Poor Bashing, The Politics of Exclusion, And uh, she uh, organizes um, uh, and does a considerable amount of work with the Carnegie Community Action Project um, based in the downtown east side. And uh, Jean's also been um, on uh, the city um, before discussing a number of issues, um, including Chinatown and and gentrification. And again, uh, you can check that out at thecityfm.org. So what we're going to be hearing them talking about, uh, a number of issues, as I mentioned, um, but the the talk um, or the, the sort of um, theme that they're addressing is, um, uh, or themes they're addressing, I should say, housing, homelessness, and opportunities to deliver housing um, as a public good, and discussing specific housing needs of women and girls, and uh, really getting down to some concrete Ways to provide safe, adequate, affordable, and uh, gender-inclusive housing in Vancouver, but also um, bringing in ideas um, and and um, ways to to address and provide that housing, um, and taking from other jurisdictions or other places that might um, might be effective or might be useful to think about in a, in a Vancouver context as well. So, on the streets where we live, housing rights and city-based solutions for women and girls. Uh, four speakers coming up on the program. Uh, this is the city here on CHR 101.9 FM, and we're going to go uh, right now uh, to those um, speakers. I am Christine O'Fallon, and
2: I'm a member of Transforming Cities, and I want to welcome everyone um, today. I want to um, quickly go over the format and aims of the session just so everyone knows what's going to happen. I'm going to start by introducing all the speakers. I want um, everyone to know that each of the speakers is going to have 10 minutes to speak. And because um, part of our uh, process today is to uh, develop recommendations to take forward to the plenary and and beyond, I'm going to be an utterly ruthless timekeeper. So um, I am going to, at the end of 10 minutes, politely ask the speakers to stop speaking. I'm sure that they're all going to be terrific and and stopped before I have to do that. Uh, Following that, uh, we're going to have 15 minutes um, for questions. um, And then following that, we're going to end the session with um, 15 minutes to identify specific actions, recommendations, and existing models of good practices that make cities work for a full diversity of women and girls. And I've been asked to remind um, us all that um, Women Transforming Cities encourages using a gender equality lens on all issues, which we define, and um, I'm taking this, or, or I was asked to take this from uh, the City of Ottawa document. We define it as a way of looking at the work we do so as to identify ways of supporting the well being of women and men, girls and boys, taking special care <coughs> to ensure inclusion of the full diversity of women and girls. So, um, again, the session is called On the Streets Where We Live, Housing Rights and City-Based Solution for Women and Girls. And to just give you some context, the topics for the panel sessions today arose out of a series of community cafes, Women and Transforming Cities, hosts monthly and um, those reports are available, reports arising from the cafes are available on our website, and there are a few copies actually downstairs in the lobby for people to look at. So early on with the cafe's project, a number of priorities became evident and prominent among them was housing. So great was the desire to talk about housing and seek solutions to housing that women transforming cities responded by holding two cafes in different parts of the city to meet the need. As many of us know, participation in the labour market, wage discrimination, race discrimination, the feminization of poverty, family configuration and education are all Factors that impact housing opportunities, specifically for women in cities, and we can all add things to this list that is by no means exhausted. And beyond these um, is the gendered nature of housing processes themselves. So the speakers um, you see before you have a wealth of knowledge and experience in housing issues, and without further ado, I'm going to introduce them to you in the order. Um, in which they are going to speak. Um, first, we have um, Janet Creda. If you want to raise your hand so people know who you are. Um, she is the senior housing planner for Metro Vancouver. And um, speaking next is Margot Young, who is the Associate Professor of Law at the University of British Columbia and co-principal investigator of the Housing Justice Project. And um, next is Janice Abbott who's here, um, who is CEO of ATIRA Women's Resource Society and ATIRA Property Management Inc. And um, rounding off the panel is uh, Jean Swanson, who is a leading anti-poverty, anti-gentrification activist. So, um, Janet, I, I put it
0: over to you.
3: Hi, thank you. And I have to to uh, say that since uh, my introduction, I'm actually now the manager of the Homeless Secretariat at Metro Vancouver. I switched jobs as of April 1st, so I was the, the senior housing planner. Um, anyway, uh, uh, how many are from outside Metro? So there's a few of you, okay. Just Metro Vancouver, I work at Metro Vancouver. It's a region of 22 municipalities, one Treaty First Nation, about 2.3 million people. Metro Vancouver, as an agency, is responsible for garbage recycling, air quality. Sewage, uh, water, um, and land use planning. So, housing fits in, and they also manage about 3,500 units of social housing. So, it's a, a large, uh, mainly sort of utility land use planning type organization with some housing. So, just some context for you about 900,000 households in the region, and um, in terms of looking at needs, I'm just gonna kind of paint a little bit of a picture of what the needs are and just some, what are some city-based uh, solutions of what cities are actually doing just around addressing affordable housing. Because I think as you're aware, affordable housing is top of mind in many communities, but uh, definitely here where housing costs are the highest in the country and vacancy rates are about the lowest in the country. Um, so we have about uh, 17% of households that are in core housing need, that would be households that spend at least 30% of their incomes. On housing uh, that is has enough bedrooms and is in good repair. So, about 17% overall, that's higher than 12%, which is a national average. Uh, we're focusing particularly on renters. Most of those in need are renters. And uh, in this region, we have about 35% of the population renters, and it varies very much across the cities. But about 80,000 renter households are in core need, and of those, about 31,000 actually pay 50% or more of their incomes on rent. And I think you can imagine what that does to your food budget and any other parts of the budget. Um, And so taking a look at those numbers, I was wondering what that gender breakdown is, and I did take a look at how that breaks down. And interestingly, on the overall figures, you know, it's about 50-50 split. There is not really a huge difference overall. But when you look at the renters, there's, you know, women tend to have lower incomes. Renters generally have lower incomes. So, we see a larger representation of women in the renter households that are in core need. But inside of that, when I looked across the region, we see some very significant differences. And outside our, our core urban centers like Vancouver and Burnaby and Richmond, where it's dense development, we actually see a lot higher proportion of women in areas such as Langley, on the North Shore, in Delta, in Surrey. It was quite uh, uh, interesting, and I'm not exactly sure why that is, whether there's um, issues in terms of the age profiles or the the family profiles in in those queens, but I just thought that was quite an interesting observation when we're looking inside what those numbers mean. Um, When we're looking uh, specifically, as as I mentioned, renting, renter households is a focus for Metro Vancouver. Um, It's a focus for affordable housing. Um, the reason, one of the main reasons is that you know, we used to see a lot of rental being built, and when we look at the demand, we see about we need about sixty five hundred rental units in this region to sort of keep pace with demand. A lot of those are on the affordable side and um, you know we used to see thousands of units being built both in social housing and rental housing. but in the past decades and most recently we 're struggling to get a thousand rental units on the ground. Um, so we've been taking a strong focus on, on how what municipalities can do and what we can do as a region to, to work, and, and a lot has been going on in that focus on rental housing, but like I said, we don't have these big tools uh, that we used to have, which is federal and provincial investment um, to, and tax incentives to get the rental housing and the social housing on the ground. But certainly there's things that cities are doing, and I wanted to talk about a few of the um, tools that are available. and from the perspective that actually the bricks and mortar and construction costs and land and the things it takes to actually build the housing aren't really gender biased. I mean, those tools are the same no matter if you're building housing uh, for women. If you're, it's the design and the client groups and all that stuff that is how you're going to focus that housing, but the actual tools that you're going to use to get there are pretty universal. And in terms of what municipalities have in their toolbox, there's sort of three different categories, and you've got your financial or fiscal tools like land, like grants, uh, fee fee relief, and things like that. So things that are actual dollar values. Um, Then you also have your planning tools, and that's an official plan that says we uh, embrace a diverse uh, community that has all different types of housing in your official plans, then neighbourhood plans that then echo that and provide space within your community to have increased housing forms. So more duplexes, more townhouse forms, and those types of things. So those are actually written into your plans and your policies. Things like inclusionary policies, where uh, you require, if a development of a certain size is being built, that a certain proportion of that project must be affordable. Uh, Those types of policies. Density bonusing is another policy that cities use quite often to say, if we want to get more affordable housing and you're building a project, um, if you want to add more units, because most often developers come in for rezonings, if you want to add more units, well we'll allow you to add more units if you uh, make some of those affordable. So those are some of the policy tools that municipalities have. Then there's education and advocacy, and this comes down to when we we do our studies and we take a look at corn eat or we take a look at rental inventories and things like that, publicizing and understanding what it means to uh, municipalities and what actually the issues are. One case that's been really effective around homelessness here in the region is we started doing homeless counts. And what that did is actually first of all show everybody that homelessness occurs across the region. It's not just the downtown east side Vancouver, it's not just in Surrey, but it is throughout all of our municipalities. It also showed us that it's not just single men, it's families, and it is women, and it is seniors, and it is youth, and it gave us this broader picture we did a rental inventory looking at how much of our existing rental stock might be under threat of redevelopment and I don't know if that's caused a shift but we certainly are now seeing a much stronger focus from all of our municipalities and in, in the public discourse about rental housing and what we're going to do about rental so ensuring that you do have information at the local level and what we produce at the regional level can help then put that dialogue and change the nature of that dialogue out into um, the communities um, So one of the other things I was looking at in terms of um, policy I wanted to mention is the region now requires um, all municipalities to develop housing action plans. And um, one of the things I said, you know, who, who, who around us, who's out in the municipalities, and I just took a quick inventory of the housing planners in Metro Vancouver. And uh, 13 out of 17 of the housing planners are women, which I found quite impressive. And the same thing with the social planners, that, this whole we are the face of these housing plans and the housing planning in the region, so I thought that was quite interesting and it really <coughs> offers that opportunity, how are those plans shaped, who are those target populations, where are the gaps, and I think we are, you know, it is women that are in the role of putting those, you know, shaping that dialogue and that I found, uh, you know, was quite um, inspiring and and, and um, hopeful from, from my perspective. Um, so in terms of the city, the, the, the impacts that cities can have, um, we have a, a document we just put out that is what works. And it talks about examples of how these tools I mentioned to you are actually put in place in making um, uh, actual projects on the ground. None of them are women-specific. But again, the tools aren't specific to women. It's specific to building and getting construction. That's one thing. But and certainly how you can apply it and you know get projects that are specifically designed. And I mean, I think one, one of the interesting things women bring to design. Um, in social housing, we do have an all-woman building because I think BC Housing identified that, you know, that one of the vulnerable populations was women between the ages of 45 and 60. So now we manage a, an all-women's project. So that's where we can have that kind of impact. when we see another thing about design, where you know we were talking to women who live in metro housing uh, projects, and they said, "Well, how come you don't use the kitchen, or how come you're not cooking meals?" Well, because I can't see my kids. <laughs> from the kitchen. I mean that's where women have that role in creating and how we create the actual housing on the ground. So, I just wanted to close with a couple of pieces of work that Metro is doing, um, again that impacts women and families and how uh, women and families are shaping our urban centers. So we're taking a look at the demographic trends in our urban centers over the last two decades and looking forward as to what's happening with families with children and also with seniors because we know that a huge proportion of that senior population is actually women and what that means for housing and what that means for transportation. And this will be really instructive about how our urban centres are changing, what the needs in those urban centres are around housing and the need for family housing in urban centres. And another thing that's uh, emerging is uh, the connection between housing and transportation, where the housing is located. And I think what women and what, uh, what we've brought to the profession a lot is a change in the dialogue about transportation planning and trip generation. We're talking about building complete communities. We're talking about building walkable communities. And it's really important not only what the housing is but where that housing is located so metro is working on um ensuring that we have a strong connection sustainability housing transportation same thing around age friendly and age accessible cities just wanted to put a plug in that every mom knows that a, wherever you can roll a wheelchair you can also push a stroller um and my one final i know in my last minute but in terms of um i wanted to mention just a little thing and i don't know where it fits in but it's also about um women in the workplace and i think because we are in these positions we're also changing the workplace to make the workplace more accommodating to uh, flexible schedules. And I don't know how that fits into the housing and the women transforming cities discussion, but I mean, I think it's important in how we work because I think women are taking on that role as well as changing that environment that we work in. Thank you. You're
4: going to
2: need them. I'm going to need them for you. Oh, I, I noticed all so right. Um, it's a tough time
3: frame. Got yes. Right.
2: Yes. Thank you for fitting so much in. That was very, that was uh, dense. Um, our next speaker is Margo Young. And great. Yes. Thank
4: ahead. you. So um, I, I just want to acknowledge being on the traditional lands of the Coast Salish people and also acknowledge the work of the organizers in creating this opportunity for us to come together to talk about these important issues. As uh, my introduction stated, I'm co-investigator in a project called Housing Justice, Canada, and it's a focus on housing in Vancouver that looks at three distinct trajectories of activity, legal, community, and policy, and the idea is to coordinate activities across these three channels to get a kind of synergy towards affecting um, forms of change around the way housing is currently dealt with in the city of Vancouver, and And I want to talk a bit back up from specific aspects of this project and talk about three discrete but I think importantly connected observations about analysis of housing for women in Vancouver and specifically I want to talk about the notion of invisibility, the notion of framing, and also the notion of focus or scale. And then I'm going to end up by bringing them together with the concept of uh, the right to the city and the way in which that has a promising, uh, what I want to say, sort of enhancement and exciting possibilities for talking about housing for women in Vancouver. So let me begin first just by noting the idea of invisibility. It's a very common theme in literature on women and housing, and essentially it captures the idea that in the area of housing provision, the needs of women and the housing and security issues of women are largely invisible to traditional analysis. Now that's not an unusual observation. In fact, if you go to any area of policy making, the gender lens, the appreciation of the circumstances and environment, that women face is also largely invisible, but it's certainly a theme of the literature on planning for urban environments and on housing in particular, and there's a large conversation about the ways in which traditional understandings of homelessness, documentation of homelessness really fail to take account of the kind of homelessness or housing insecurity that women and their children experience. And so one of the things I think that's obviously critical to this conversation is to explore the actual circumstances, the environments and the complexities of the kind kind of housing and security issues that women across Canada, but, but for this context of our project in Vancouver specifically, face. The other piece, I think, of this conversation around invisibility is recognizing that there is an iceberg effect at play. You know, the iceberg's a common metaphor for housing insecurity. You have the visible tip being the homeless, there's the street...
0: There's
5: of it in that pamphlet they all have.
4: Okay, in the pamphlet you have, there's an iceberg there. There's also, I think, um, an iceberg image that's useful for thinking about women's experience with uh housing insecurity and that is to say that housing insecurity or homelessness given a more enhanced encompassing feminist definition is the tip of a larger iceberg of the social justice problems that women face there are many determinants of homelessness, of housing insecurity for women around social assistance rates, childcare availability, transportation, and those sorts of things that are actually a key piece as well of thinking about how to address the immediate problem of adequate housing for women. And so part of the invisibility is not just that we don't have popular and well-trod understandings of housing issues as women face them, but we also need to pull into the conversation these other less- uh, Targeted determinants of women's housing, like their pov- women's disproportionate poverty, childcare provision, and so on. So, it's indeed a very complex conversation about social justice that you need to have in order to deal with even uh, sort of one aspect of this picture the aspect of housing insecurity. The other concept I want to introduce, the second one, is the idea of framing. And, and Tiffany talked a bit about this in her presentation today, and I think it's really quite critical to approaching these problems to be self-conscious about how we're framing what's at issue. So of course framing is a popular device to capture the way in which we code or parse out problems. What our reference points are, what we make visible, what we leave invisible, what we question, what we assume. And and indeed the dominant frame now is one of neoliberalism and neoliberal forms of governance in which there's a focus on the responsible uh, self off authoring individual, an idea of the marketization of all realms of life, understanding this sort of uh, self-choosing, self-willing, self-creating individual to be the metric of uh, social organization and the way in which neoliberal forms of government deflect attention from central government state remedies to privatized uh, community groups or other forms of local, really in some ways, uh, underfunded and de forms of, uh, of community local responsibility, the sort of P3 development for example that kind of neoliberal localization and opposing this I would argue the justice framework And a feminist justice framework is the appropriate one. And importantly, a piece of this, I think, for making traction in the area of women's rights to adequate housing is to focus on the notion of rights and what that brings into the conversation. I'm not a great fan of the sort of abstract idea of rights. It comes out of a very individualistic classical liberal tradition, but it has some important features when you bring it into a social justice context that I think are critical. It uh, encodes the notion of government responsibility. That it's not a private resolution of issues, but we look to the state to resolve. The idea of accountability and transparency, of accountability mechanisms, of ways of cleaning and demanding and accounting for failures in rights provision. It's an idea of entitlement and not charity. So the assumption that this will be provided as opposed to it remaining optional or market. Uh, Driven And then also, importantly, there's this idea of a kind of substantive realisation that I would say the feminist context brings to the idea of rights. And so the feminist concept, of course, uh, enforces the idea of recognition that we're all marked by social divisions, that social divisions uh, deliver or parcel out different packages of privilege and disadvantage or marginalization, inclusion, and exclusion, and that gender is an important dynamic, but it's also an important value that intersects with other social divisions as well. And the idea of respect for difference and indeed valuing difference, I think, is an important piece of that picture. That brings me to the last piece in my remaining three minutes, <laughs> um, which is just to talk about the importance of the focus or scale of analysis. And we already get this because we're here at a conference about cities. But I just wanted to note the, the sort of um, importance of the fact that cities are increasingly getting a kind of resurgence importance in social judge- judgment judge- justice struggles. So they're key geographical sites, in the word of one theorist. They're key sites of the delivery and the playing out of these new modes of neoliberal governance, and they're also key sites for understanding resistance against, and the complexities and tensions of large cities also raise opportunities for ways to see beyond current forms of uh, liberal neoliberal Ordering, And I I just mentioned a really interesting study by a woman called Leslie Stern, who's a Toronto academic. She looks at the sale and the marketing of condominiums in Toronto and talks about how the development industry has a role in the neoliberal construction of women's own understandings of their citizenship in the city and how women are coming to see themselves as urban citizens through their consumption, their home ownership, and how urban space construction is feeding into what is really not a very feminist or liberatory pattern. Of understanding female women's agenda, uh, agency. So cities are really a strategic terrain, and it's incredibly important to be having the kinds of conversations that we're having now. And there's a large discussion in feminist citizen. Ship literature about really the importance of focusing on cities as one male theorist says it's it's the point at which the rubber of the personal hits the ground of the societal, the intersection of everyday life with the socially created systemic world around us. So it, again just to say um, that they're a key piece of this this social justice conversation and in particular to tie it back into my first point in my last minute about um, the the notion of rights is an important recognition in this conversation about how rights have a spatial configuration. And so I'm a constitutional, not a lawyer, but a academic, legal academic, and one of the things I'm working on is how rights in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms actually, for disempowered groups really have impact and and bear on how we organize space in our cities. So the spatialization of rights is also another important piece of this conversation, and that spatialization takes place in the urban environment, which brings me to my last point, which I think pulls all these three notions of invisibility, of uh, framing, and... um, of the local into a kind of focus is this conversation that's bubbling around for some time now about the notion of the right to the city. It's not a very well articulated conversation, it's not spelled out, but it has a kind of I think excitement about it that we make ourselves and we realize our citizenship through the spaces that we build, the built patterns, the forms of use that we allow to happen in our cities, the balance of public-private and so on. And before Christine has to step in and interrupt me, I'm going to um, please stop and, and say that, uh, uh, that I'm done. <laughs> Thank you, Margo. You're welcome. That, was, that, was, that
2: was well done. Um, uh, the next speaker
6: is Janice Adams. I just want to feel. I felt guilty. Oh, yeah. So you should. (laughs) 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 No, I haven't pressed the button. (laughs) Um, So uh, I'm going to use up another two seconds of my time by acknowledging that I cracked my tailbone the other day. So if I'm, I'm squirmy, and that's just the way it is. (laughs) It's got nothing to do with what's being said. Um, I work for an organization called uh, Atira Women's Resource Society. We're a women's anti-violence organization, and um, and, uh, we manifest our mission primarily through housing. So we provide a variety of different kinds of housing for women and children and for women only in uh, White Rock, Surrey, South Surrey, um, Burnaby, and in Vancouver, primarily in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Um, There are three things that kind of um, uh, describe us, we are feminist-identified, we work within an anti-oppression framework, and we work within a harm reduction or practice. So those sort of three things that drive what we do. We house about, um, on any given day, probably somewhere between 800 and 1,000 women across the Lower Mainland. Um, most of our housing is transitional, so women uh, women who are fleeing violence and Um, A number of years ago, we really broadened our definition of what fleeing violence means, so it doesn't have to be an an immediate flight from violence, it could also be um, someone who needs support around a historical experience of violence, so something that happened to them a number of years ago, but it's impacting them at this particular moment in their lives. so we house women who, like I say, women, uh, women with children, women who are single, lots of women whose children are in care. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that because we believe one of the, the best things or the most important things we can do to end homelessness is to figure out a way to keep women and children together. Um, most of the women that we house in the downtown east side who are single um, not only have children in care, but they grew up in the foster care system. So um, while I, I'm not familiar with the research, um, anecdotally I know there's got to be some kind of relationship between that experience um, and the, the experience of ending up um, homeless and struggling with homelessness. Um, we believe a number of things in, in our programs. Uh, we believe women must have choice. So um, I think the most kind of simple way to say this is uh, um, that we're not saving women, that hopefully we have policies in place that allow women to make choices that keep themselves safe. So that's always what's kind of driving us, is creating policies and practices that allow women the opportunity to make choices about their lives and keep themselves safe. Um, we, uh, we probably turn away um, about three times as many women as we house. So we're turning away uh, probably every day, somewhere between 20 and 25 women who call us or come into one of our offices looking for a place to live. Um, We do low barrier housing. Most of the women that we work with are struggling with substance use um, and struggling with mental and spiritual wellness. And I struggle with that a a bit because as I said earlier, we house women who are fleeing violence. And over the last number of years, um, it's been our experience that more and more violence against women is stuck in women's heads. So it's no longer about the violence they experience, about, about what's wrong with them. Um, and we really try to work hard to understand or to put into practice or part of what we do. Um, it's kind of believed that there's nothing wrong with women that not being raped, murdered, and assaulted won't cure. So once those things stop, <laughs> then we can start to talk about mental and spiritual wellness and whether there's a biologically based thing going on there. Um, but while women are experiencing violence, um, who knows what's going on in their heads and it's not something that's wrong with them. Um, uh, I know Margot talked a bit about invisibility, but I'd like to just sort of reiterate that women's homelessness is largely unrepresented in things like homelessness counts um, because women experience homelessness differently. So they're uh, often living with men who are violent or abusive or in situations where their landlords are abusive and so their experience of homelessness is often repeated. So they're, uh, they've got a place to live for a little while, that situation goes wrong, they've been assaulted, they've been um, taken advantage of or exploited in some way and then they find themselves homeless again. So we're often working with women who, uh, in theory, have a place to live, or sort of in practicality, I guess, have a place to live for six or seven months, but it's not a place that's safe for them. So the six or seven months they're back again, back in shelter, or back looking for housing. Um, and that's ongoing. Um, we also work with women who experience homelessness, and you know, I'm not sure how this is represented in homelessness counts, but they have homes when they have their children, um, then their children are apprehended, and then they're homeless um, because they either can't afford to pay the rent um, or, their, uh, or their income assistance or their shelter allowances is um, dropped because their children are no longer living with them my five minutes. Um, so that's another thing that doesn't get represented. And women, you know, if the homeless count happens when women are in a place where they're living and not when they're not, it's just sort of in the, not in the in-between place, that's how women end up getting underrepresented in the homelessness count. So I think that there's uh, far more women who are homeless or at risk of homelessness um, than is ever, um, ever uh, reported. Mm-hmm. Um So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the notion of keeping women and children together, um, finding ways to support families instead of to support the foster care system. As I said earlier, probably, uh, uh, probably 90, um, anecdotally I would say 90 uh, or more percent of the women that were housing who were single and in the downtown east side grew up in the foster care system. And that's not to say that the foster parents were necessarily bad or evil, it's to say that the um, that the experience of being taken away from your siblings and your mom and your family and the places that you know is something that many women um, never reconcile or it takes them a long time to reconcile. So if we can find, and, and then the experience after that of losing your own children. So we have many women who um, have you know, anywhere between three and eight or 12 kids who are in foster care. Um, and continue to get pregnant because they're forever trying to fill that gap or that hole or that loss or to fill that grief. Um, and it, it's just an on, ongoing cycle. Um, and so if we can find a way, I think one of the, the build more housing for women and children um, and provide <coughs> supports for women so that they're able to keep their children with them, um, I think that would go a long way to ending homelessness uh, for women. Or it's, it's an intergenerational or a longer term idea, but if we don't start now, we're going to continue to <coughs> be homeless women forever. Um, I think we also have to, again, really have a, a, a look or a long, hard look at the, the medical model that's being sort of shoved down our throats. So we are forever being told that our women are mentally ill and they need to be medicated, um, and they need to be watched and they need to be lived in, they need to live in housing where there's staff on 24 hours a day, seven days a week because they're unable to look after themselves. Um, This is the kind of housing that's being uh, championed, particularly in the city of Vancouver, but not only. Um, And we need to start looking at forms of housing that allow women to have purpose and influence over their space, Um, so definitely supportive housing when they need it, but there's not enough housing um, that allows women to have agency over their lives. So I'd like to see more of that kind of housing for women and and housing where women can have their kids. Atira, uh, one of the other things we do which has been a little bit controversial, or a lot controversial, I guess, um, is we also allow women to have agency over their units. They pay rent in their units. Um, it means a lot of our women, a lot of our women are engaged in street uh, level sex work and they bring their dates into their units. Um, it's our belief that it's poverty, um, poverty that uh, makes people watch them or pay attention to what they're doing. If you're paying $3,000 a month to live in a penthouse in the West End and doing this stuff, nobody's paying attention to who your visitors are. If you live in a single-room accommodation hotel in the van- in the downtown east side of Vancouver and your rent is three seventy five a month, everybody is paying attention to who your guests are. Um, and we want, again, it's back to that idea of wanting to create um, policies and practices that allow women the opportunity to make choices to keep themselves safe. So that's part of uh, part of our uh, uh, mandate. Um, so I, I think I'll probably finish there. Oh, okay.
2: Give Jean some extra time. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> so, um, our, our final speaker, um, Jean
5: Swanson. Okay. So I'd like to acknowledge that we're on the stolen territory of the Coast people, the Snohomish tsleil tooth and Musqueam. And thank them for allowing us to be here. I work in the downtown east side at the Carnegie Action Project, and we try to get more and better housing and higher incomes. And last fall, we helped form the Social Housing Coalition that put out that pamphlet that you guys all have. Um, sometimes I'm bad about this gender lens stuff, even though I... I'm a, I'm a woman and I was a single parent for two kids, with two kids for a long time. And my housing experience was, we moved five times in five years um, because the drunks who lived downstairs were threatening the kids, the landlord's relatives wanted to move in, the kids moved out and I couldn't afford the big place, the kids moved back and I needed a bigger place, the landlord wanted to demol- demolish and build condos, the bumper plating chemical coating on the outside of the house was driving me crazy. So those are like, that's like typical things that you experience if you're a working low-income person. And then I always slept in the living room and tried to have a bedroom for each kid. Um, but they slept in the same room when they were young. And there was one place where we made the dining room into a bedroom for one of them. So, and in my work, there's been many times where I've been on the other end of the phone from women who are asking me what the welfare rates are, and I could just hear them calculating in their head, should I put up with the abuse, would it be better for my kids for me to put up with the abuse of my husband or with the abuse of the welfare low rates? So, those are some of the issues. Um... For me, it only improved after after the kids grew up and I got a space in a co-op. I've been nice and secure for 25 years. (laughs) And um, so now I work in the downtown east side and we have a housing crisis and an income crisis. There's 850 homeless people who have been counted, and of course there's all the hidden ones that Janice was talking about. There's 5,000 people living in SROs with no pr- kitchen or bathroom. About 40% of downtown side residents are women. Um, so for the ones that, that are in the SROs, it can be really, really dangerous. I mean, uh, because you have to go out to go to the bathroom. You have to go out of your room to go to the bathroom. You have to go out of your room to go to the kitchen. You have to go out of your room to go in and out of, the, of your room. Um... And the poverty crisis means that women are trying to is- exist on welfare, which is 6-10 a month. So they don't have enough money for rent or food. And uh, one or the other has to be sacrificed. It, and it means, like Janice was saying, that women often live with men just so they can live in a place, and uh, even though it's just 10 by 10. So you have a man and a woman. woman. When we did our hotel survey last year, we found 18 hotels were renting Two people to a room, and sometimes they're charging them each seventy five, three seventy five, seven hundred dollars for a ten by ten room. We, this is a recipe for violence against women. Um, even if you had a good relationship, it would be a recipe for violence. Um, so the solution for me is um, more social housing. And I think Women Transforming Cities has endorsed the demands of this social housing coalition Um, and in the downtown east side we need to uh, stop gentrification which is pushing up rents and pushing people out last year when we did our survey we found out that rents went up in 426 rooms they went up over to 425 or over which means you basically can't afford them if you're on welfare And so if you're a woman that makes it bad to um, I just wanted to say a little bit about the, this idea of three Ps for housing. It drives me crazy. Um, I'm old enough to remember when we had virtually no homelessness. I, I was reading a Judy Graves article, and she said the same thing. How many of you can remember that, when we had virtually no homelessness in Vancouver? It's because welfare rates were higher, it was easier to get on, and people could live in the SROs, and um, there were vacancy rates. And now there have been a whole bunch of policy changes, and governments have stopped funding social housing. So we have the most expensive housing market, in the world, second most expensive housing market in the world, and we have virtually no social housing program. The government keeps announcing and re-announcing the 14 sites, which right now it practically makes me barf whenever I hear that because there have been virtually no new announcements besides the 14 sites in Vancouver. And um, you guys, we cannot, or you women, we cannot give up on the idea of government-funded social housing. If we do, we will have a perpetual housing crisis and perpetual homelessness, and we've got to fight like hell. Now the next election coming up is federal. We've got to fight like hell for a national housing program. Um, I'll give you an example of what I think is going to happen with the three P's if it keeps going. It's like the housing above the library in Strathcona. We fought for that. The city was buying library. We said. You should put housing above it. And they said, no, no, and we brought a bunch of people to council, and finally the city manager said, well, maybe I can make this work, and she went out and she, to her credit, she put together a deal with a bunch of the Y and a bunch of charitable foundations, and they're going to build a supportive housing for women uh, for 20 units of supportive housing above the library. And guess what they're going to call it? Because we care house. Because we care house. So imagine you're a kid or a woman living in this house, right? Unless we can get them to change that name, it's going to be awful. It'll be like the food bank of housing. This P3 stuff for housing is going to turn housing into a, a situation like food banks where people rely on charity, housing just like they rely on charity for food and food banks don't begin to meet the need and that kind of housing isn't going to meet the need Uh, okay good what are three p's for housing three p's are like the city buys the land the province maybe throws in a couple hundred thousand for planning or something and then charities throw in a little bit of money, and then maybe the city gives a little density, makes the developer throw in a little bit of density bonus, it gives them a higher density, so the developer throws in a unit or something. The most you can get is about one unit of social <coughs> housing at welfare rate for ten condos. That's the rate, but the ratio, the highest ratio you can get. Um, so it's in and in places like the downtown east side where they're talking about this three P weight. Uh, stuff It's going to wipe out a uh, functioning low-income community, which isn't to say the community is perfect and can't be improved. It definitely can be improved, particularly by having good social housing. But the idea that low-income people would have a right to the city or a right to live in a place that developers want to make profit off of is pretty frightening to the media and governments and funders, in fact just proposing this idea I have never been so attacked so much in the last 40 years of activism. So it's so I just wanted to show you the demands of the coalition. This is for the Social Housing Coalition. I think we're... It has a fantastic website that Kathy Shimizu did. So go on the website and find out when our next meeting is. But the demand is to build 10,000 units a year in BC. And the demand... Is completely justified by the need I mean we might as well speak the truth about the need for housing right if we keep minimizing it like Vancouver City Council is doing oh we're getting all these homeless people off the street well they're still homeless folks they're still in shelters they still don't have self-contained people self-contained housing you're minimizing the need. you're not creating a public awareness of the demand so we're trying to talk about what the real need is and it's vulnerable people, oppressed people who are in the biggest need: immigrants, women, people with disabilities. Um, and so I don't know. These I think these are really good uh, demands, and we've had over 50 groups have endorsed them, including Atira, I think, and you guys, Women Transforming Cities. So, yeah, and um, I agree totally with Janice about the medical model. It sucks. People in the downtown east side are saying now that they don't like living in, being in all this medical stuff and they want to be treated like human beings and not have people going into the rooms at all hours and stuff. And, um, yeah, my fear is that unless we get our butts in gear and get a really strong campaign for a national social housing program, federal provincial housing program, that we are going to see massive increases in a homelessness and for housing for everybody. <coughs> okay. Presents Radio Fest Fundraiser on September the 6, 2013, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. at the Radio Cafe 101 Hastings Street in Vancouver on the corner of Columbia. Come and meet our lineup of Aboriginal professionals in our ever-expanding cultural industry featuring model Jolene Alicia Mitten and carver Andy Wesley. With these artists and more, we will be raising funds for our first ever radio festival to be held within days on September 10th to the 13th in celebration of reconciliation. For more information, please go to redjamslam.com.
3: With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on.
1: We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next.
3: The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way.
1: Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM.
5: This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
1: And you're listening to The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Uh, you've been hearing On the Streets, Where We Live Housing Rights and City Based Solutions for Women and Girls. And that was a discussion uh, featuring uh, Janice Abbott of Atira Women's Resource Society, Janet Krita, uh, Manager of the Homeless Secretariat at, at Metro Vancouver, Margot Young, Associate Professor of Law at UBC and uh, a co-investigator of the Housing Justice Project, and Jean Swanson, anti-poverty, anti-gentrification activist and organizer with the Carnegie Community Action Project, and uh, uh, facilitated um, by Christine O'Fallon from Women Transforming Cities. And that was from the May 30th, 2013 Engaging Women Transforming Cities uh, National Conference. We're going to end with a a short track from Fanshawe uh, based out of uh, Vancouver here. And uh, we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Thanks as always for tuning in and have a wonderful week.
0: Dark eyes, disguise her. There's a choice